Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, you are listening to the Dabblers Book Club with one of your hosts, Hadger Woodland. And guess what? We still haven't started Series 3. Before I dive into this, our third guest special, let me tell you what we've got coming up. I haven't actually read a novel all year, but I have just finished an excellent memoir called People Like Us, and I'll be sharing an interview with its author, the barrister and broadcaster, Hashi Muhammad, next time. I cannot tell you how thrilled I was to speak to him, and I will use every superlative under the sun when I introduce him in our fourth guest special, but whatever you do, do not miss that interview. We've also been eyeing up various novels to review, and while we haven't nailed everything down yet, I can tell you we'll be kicking off proceedings with Booker-winning Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, so please get reading in time for Series 3. In the meantime, for this, our third guest special, we're joined by an absolute delight of a man. Ed Needham is an award-winning editor and magazine veteran on both sides of the pond. He's edited Rolling Stone and FHM, and now he's the founder and editor of Strong Words magazine. Approaching its 25th issue, it's a fairly new publication, but much needed. When we turn to the internet and everyone screaming at us on social media about what to read and listen to, a physical magazine you can immerse yourself in feels like a necessary joy at this time. With over 100 book reviews and interviews from literary greats, including Sebastian Folks and the rock star behind Vernon Subotex, Virginie Despontes, it aims to hold your hand and guide you to the books that will pique your interest and bring much needed pleasure. We spoke to Ed about his literary loves, including Laurent Binet's HHHH and the works of Dickens, and of course, about the inspiration behind Strong Words magazine. Hi Ed, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? My pleasure. I'm very well, thank you. So, uh, Strong Words magazine, uh, you founded a couple of years ago, I believe. Can you tell us about it and how it came about? Yes, uh, so it's about three years it's been going for now. So I've worked in magazines all my life, and even the, the, the magazine industry has kind of going through very hard times at the moment. It's not competed well against the growth of digital media. Mm. Uh, but I don't know how to do anything else. So I thought, well, I, I, at least the, te- the one good thing to come out of technology at the moment is that it's possible to produce a magazine with very few people nowadays. So mm. I thought, is it possible to do one? What's, what's the lowest we can get to? Is it possible to do a magazine with one person? And could that one person be me? <laughs> so uh, I thought, and I found that I can. So I've done 25 issues of Strong Words now. It comes out every six weeks. And it's really for people who buy books 
for pleasure. I think people struggle to find out which book to read next. And when they do go to more sort of regular sources like broadsheet newspapers, for example, you find that sometimes, you know, too many reviewers can treat books as though they are homework. You know, there is a, it's a solemn obligation. It's really important that it's a big fat hardback and it's about military history or, (laughs) Uh, but I don't think most people read books like that or even think about which book they're going to buy next. So Strong Words aims to put interesting and useful reviews in front of people without really giving a sort of um, strong opinion as to, you know, this book isn't as good as their last one or, you know, so it's not it's not a heavy sort of critical opinion. But it does. I do want it to be useful enough for people to say that sounds like the book for me. Has that been quite a shift for you personally? I mean, have you had that sort of shift in your own life where you went through a phase of it being a slog? A little bit, I guess. Obviously, I was trying to think, if I'm going to do a magazine on my own, what am I going to write about? You know, it has to be something that is sufficiently interesting for me to do it. Britain is the sort of most bookish nation in the world. No other country produces as many books per capita as the UK. So um, I think it's, you know, it is a subject which is a appropriate i don't think your books get anything like the kind of media attention that they deserve and uh and it's interesting you know there is an absolute you know mountain every uh every month you know brings yet another mountain of really fabulous books so um it, the idea is to just you know is to put people in in touch with them but i i'm i i don't mind a you know a difficult hardback <laughs> i can see stalingrad and d-day just right behind you <laughs> And uh, I have read a bit of, you know, a bit of military history in my time. And, yeah. and and I think also a lot of historians have started to realise, actually, we've got to make our books a bit more readable if we want to compete. And yeah. certainly, um, you know, uh, historians like sort of Tom Holland, for example, has realised there's a pretty big market out there for people who well, they want to know more about history. They feel they should know more about history. It's like almost like a, a, an obligation to know a mm. bit more. But... So if we can just make those books a bit more easy to consume or a bit more, you know, go with a bit more zip or have a bit more flair about them or something a bit saucy, then people will buy them and read them and go on about them, feel really proud to have read them as well. So I think authors and publishing houses have started to realise that too. Picking up on the list of books you sent, should we start with the uh, H, 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 H? Yeah, you're speaking about history and making that more accessible. And obviously H, 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 H. Is um, a sort of contentious one in terms of what its classification is. Tell us, tell us why that's on your on your list of of books. Uh, well, it, it just made a, an enormous impression on me. I think when people mess around with with structure and they're going to try and do things in different ways, sometimes it can get so personal that they actually take end up taking very very few people on their journey with them. Yeah. And this is kind of the opposite. You know, this is a way of writing about history, an event in history, the assassination of Heydrich in Prague in 1942 and he explains doesn't he that the the difficulties of writing this historical event as a kind of a piece of fiction using the techniques of fiction and suddenly realizes well actually I'm in in this too because Mm -hmm. I've got to make decisions about which bits to use and these things might be a bit contradictory and they don't quite fit together or they I feel differently about them so he is rather cleverly articulating the difficulties he is having of making a story out of a piece of history yeah. but without laying it on too thick and yeah. did you think yeah well that's you know you've just made it really interesting and, yeah. and I think you know when, when you read history it can read 
it doesn't lie sort of dead on the page, does it? But it can it can definitely be a bit sort of sullen. Mm. It's like a child that is only allowed to listen to classical music. Yeah. It's not allowed to enjoy itself. It's got to be sort of serious and highbrow at all times. And this is, you know, it's a piece of history. Mm. It's a piece of history you can read about in history books, but he makes it so dynamic and so exciting that uh, suddenly you've become, you know, it... it stays in your head doesn't it It really resonates and i think everybody who's read this book is suddenly also an ex an expert on the assassination of reinhard heydrich it was so clever and it yeah it it really stuck with me that whole story and he really managed to get yeah get in the bones of Gabchik and and kubic and we actually uh we went to prague didn't we two years ago and luckily i'd I'd, you know we went after i'd read the book because i wouldn't have known to have gone to the um the church in the crypt have have you been i haven't no i've never been to prague no well, yeah, it was haunting, wasn't it? Just because it is quite something. Well, down in the crypt where they, they were, where they, they got caught in the end, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, um, I think yeah, because they were shooting down there and then they flooded it or something. Yeah, it was fantastic to actually connect. So a big part of our podcast and um, the production company behind it is that we're about working class voices and um, and amplifying those in the working class experience. We're both sort of very state school people, and I don't know what your educational background was, but we didn't get to go on school trips and learn about history. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't we didn't do active history in any way so it's one of those things that you only sort of come to for me in I mean I did a history degree but I was with all these people who had been to the places that we were studying and I was like oh what's that you can you can go to those places and this book was just a fantastic opportunity when we finally went to Prague as well to sort of connect connect those dots and, and actually feel it it really is it's you know it's in the walls those last moments I was gonna build on your sort of catching up so something I did as an adult because I never got to do it as a teenager was read all of Dickens and I believe it's something you did as a teenager yes it is I did great expectations for O level when we did it at school it was uh, the first time we did it I didn't I didn't pay any attention and um, (laughs) you know it's quite a big book it's obviously not nowhere near his biggest but it's even so it's quite daunting to a 14 year old to to Mm. be presented with something like that and school you know English classes were a bit of a muck about class and it's so easy to just you know, miss a few pages. And it's not really something you could do with Dickens. So it wasn't until I had to come to revise and read it again that I sort of started and and concentrated and uh, took it all in. And I think that was my first sort of sort of adult experience of reading a book Hmm. where this is just amazing. You know, how did I miss this the first time around? How was I not sort of, you know, why was my head not blown off its hinges the moment I picked this up, because mm. I just thought the verve of Dickens, the energy that he just pumps into the whole thing, the scenes of the, on the marshes, the, all the things that people love about Dickens, you know, that made me think Dickens is just the, it's just awesome. And I must read everything he's ever written now. <laughs> so, uh, so then I started reading, uh, I decided I was going to read, I'm going to read all of Charles Dickens from, and I'm going to do it chronologically. So starting from Pickwick Papers, and all the way through to Edwin Drood, and uh, and um, and so that's what I did, and I somehow managed to stick with it. I think that, I think as you know, teenagers have that uh, ability at some point. It's only a really narrow window, probably when you're sort of a sixth former or at university, where you're prepared to actually make an extraordinary effort to read quite difficult books, mm. and after that you probably give up you know you think well now I can choose what I want to read you know whereas I think uh, kids do have an ability just in for a few years to to take on really quite ambitious 
projects. Yeah. See, I feel like I had quite a similar experience, except sort of 10 years later, I came to Great Expectations as well as my first one, but I was 20. And like you, I sort of gave it the time of day and, you know, gave those opening chapters the, the, the concentration they deserved. And like you say, you just access the beauty that's quite hard to fathom. You're going, I can't quite put my finger on why this is beautiful, but there's something quite otherworldly about this. Um, and um, I think there's a, there's a line towards the end of either the first or second chapter where he's, Pip's come back from his first adventure where he gets into the altercation in the graveyard. And I think it just ends with the line, it was Christmas Eve. And for some reason, I just, it just rattled me. I don't, I don't yeah. even know if that tra- you know um, translates saying it now, but I remember reading it going, oh, wow, there's something on a whole nother level here. And actually interesting, because I, I loved Edwin Drood. Um, and I forgot that while I was reading it that he, he didn't finish it. No. So the, the plot's really hotting up, isn't it? And then you go, oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's done. <laughs> like, we'll never, we'll never know. Well, apart from the theories pulled together from the notes. Um, but right. what, what, what were your, um, your favourite Dickens? Well, I mean, unlike most authors, one of the great things about Dickens is that he, as he got older, he got better. Uh, so really, the, the late ones are my, are my very favourite ones. When I was in my teenage Dickens marathon, the one that I liked most was Barnaby Rudge, which I made the mistake of going back and reading again at some point. Not, I don't know when it was, but I thought, what was I so excited about there? Why did I get, <laughs> you know, so thrilled about that? But it worked at the time, and mm. um, uh, but yeah, the, the I mean the the later ones, Little Dorrit and Bleak House and Mutual Friend, you know, real house bricks of books. Mm. But mm. there's a, a brilliant biography by Claire Tomlin of Charles Dickens, and it ends up with her describing him writing in his room. And remember, all this in this entire universe of characters, of places and people, it's all it's all come out of his head. You know, mm. he has created that entire thing, entire universe of energy, and you know, it's just all from one man. And she said he he used to get so frenzied when he would be writing that he kept a bucket of water in the corner of his room, the room where he wrote, and every now and again he would have to go and plunge his head into this bucket of water, almost like to wow. cool his imagination down. You know, wow, like his, like his hair was going to set on fire. He was he was his brain was you know producing material with such intensity i'm really glad you mentioned barnaby rudge uh absolutely one of his most incredible works and when you said about the characters he created just the oddness of them i've just never rooted for someone as much as i've rooted for barnaby <laughs> it was an incredible journey but you say how that book sort of changed when you reread it and we talk about this all the time of needing a book when when it's in front of you somehow it connects with something in you at that time in your life and then going back over it it might be you know almost meaningless or it, ha- it doesn't it loses that resonance but then you know in the history boys where R- richard griffith's uh, character says you know read it learn it remember it and it'll be relevant later in life there's there's those two sides where it's like yeah just do the reading and you don't know when it will sort of pop up again in your head and be relevant um and then on the other hand you sort of revisit a book and you, yeah as you said it's like well, what was what was all that about why did that connect right i think films are even worse actually you know and it's a really risk, risky business isn't it going back to something that you really enjoyed mm. um because it is so connected with you know you were a different person 20 years ago and you, oh. you thought different things and your range of experience was different and all in so many ways so to go back and hope to have the same experience is uh it's risky. It's really optimistic, and yeah. it can so easily go wrong. And I think it more often goes wrong than um, than goes right. Hmm. Yeah, value the memory of it. <laughs> well, right. I mean, lucky with with uh, with your sort of reading obligations, you don't have too much of an opportunity to 
to go back again. No, I don't. And obviously, if I do have any spare time, the last thing I'm going to do is read another book. Um, (laughs) See, I'm now looking at, I think I can see a Kingsley. Oh, no, it's a Martin Martin. Emmys um, bit behind you. I can't see quite see which one it is. We've got um, money written down, I think, uh, as as one of your favourites as well. I've not got there yet. I've, I've read Top of My Head by Martin um dead babies and london fields but uh, i'm interested to hear about money it's obviously one of his big hits why is it so important to you well i think millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He came out in the mid-80s, didn't it? Maybe 84 or something like that, he, he wrote it. And uh, somebody gave it to me because they obviously thought, uh, you're going to love this. So I read it about, maybe about 1988 when I was uh, sort of mid mid 20s and so I think I was still then thinking that literature was something that you had to take quite seriously you know I'd done did English at school and I did uh, um, at a level and I did uh, American literature at university and uh, still I think had this idea that that that, uh, literature is something you have to take very seriously it's a solemn business Um, it is you know homework it's sometimes literally homework you know you have to read it whether you like it or not Mm -hmm. and was definitely dissuaded I think from the idea even though I like reading dissuaded from the idea a bit that literature could be enjoyable and it's almost like by definition you know if you enjoyed it then it it couldn't be literature so that's the first time I read a book where I read a novel which was so just kind of irreverent and impertinent and uh just funny you know so outrageously stylish and has, so it has this um it's the story of a, a man who called john self who is this sort of slightly larger than life filmmaker character who goes to new york to try and make a movie and he thinks there's all this all, all this money and um uh every you know everything sort of uh, colossal in its uh, ambition uh, and you just say it all goes wrong, but it all adds up to this kind of feeling of, you know, just a sort of reminder that British people, w- with regards to America, tend to have a gigantic superiority complex. Mm. I think, mm. you know, or, or at least, yeah. you know, kind of see it as a thing of equals. Whereas uh, Britain, viewed from America, uh, is very much a tiny speck, like all the other specks that are, you know, on the other side of the ocean. And uh, so this John Self character goes there, goes to America, 
thinking he is the he is it he's the big i am uh and is completely in control of this um movie making process uh whereas he is obviously completely mis misguided on that point and he discovers it uh with maximum uh humiliation how you just described money actually reminded me a lot of uh, one fat englishman by kingsley um, and I was just wondering, you know, if he, if Martin might have been inspired by his dad <laughs> at all, you know, um, with that sort of transatlantic relationship and exploring that in a book. Another book. We'll get onto this. Then we want to. I want to talk more about uh, about strong words. Hunter S. Thompson. Now, Curtis has a Hunter S. Thompson tattoo. He also has a George Orwell tattoo. Um, well, a tribute to George Orwell. I won't show you them. <laughs> <laughs> I have lots of Hunter S. Thompson pictures in in my home, which I didn't expect to have. But, it, you know, <laughs> um, it's nice to have it in the house. Um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas said it's one of your one of your top. Yes. Again, I mean, I think the thing that ties all these books together is just this um staggering momentum that they all have and you get it from the very first sentence with mm. um uh fear and loathing in las vegas you, the the you you're instantly aware that you are in the presence of something very different uh, to anything you've ever read before and that it is out of control um but done with such verve and uh confidence you know this is writing about this uh, manic experience as though it's perfectly normal and he's completely in control and nobody has anything to worry about even the you know the the tone of voice that he sometimes somehow manages to conjure in the midst of all of this uh, manic experience just it makes you think like just don't stop you know keep mm. going i love what you're saying so much you know just keep it coming please and uh <laughs> And it's just amazing when, when you know, when, the, when there's so many books written, when there's that somebody could come up with something that's unmistakably him yeah. in amongst all these hundreds of thousands of other people who are. No, I agree. There's such an energy to his writing style. And like you say, it's so authentic, so true to himself and how he sees the world. And yeah, like you, I just find him exciting to read. I could fly through anything by him. <laughs> I've, yeah, I'm yet to read. I've watched Where the Buffalo Roam. That's as far as I've gone with um <laughs> with Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, there's a couple of other interesting things about Hunter Thompson. One is that um, I think pretty much everybody, every, certainly all young men and lots of young women as well, go through their Hunter S. Thompson phase and become absolutely obsessed with him and try and read everything that he's ever written and try and, if they want to go on and become writers, there's quite a bit of Hunter S. Thompson mm. in their early efforts at uh, producing something. Yeah. And which is quite extraordinary, again, given all the people that you could choose from to be, you know, mentors. He has got to be one of the most popular. And then the other thing which is extraordinary about him is just how funny he is and laugh out loud funny. And I think if if writers can achieve that, um, getting people to laugh out loud even once, you've made a really important connection with mm, people. Yeah. And uh, that's something that people carry with them. You know, they remember being made to laugh and uh I don't understand why authors don't do it more. Mm. You know, try and just try and get a couple of really involuntary spasms of laughter out of their readers because it just it's a it's a lifelong connection if you've done that. Do you think it's because people associate being a good writer with making people cry more than laughing? We think we make people feel things like we want to make people feel sad almost. I guess one of the one of the great things about books is they take you into the unknowable world of people you know that, that this is one thing i i believe to be true above all others that you know people are unknowable including mm. ourselves and books is one way into that great magnificent world of unknowability yeah. 
um, just how strange straight looking people can be and how unexpectedly people can behave under pressure and all these things, you know, it's, it never gets boring. So I, I can understand why that's, you know, such a common objective of writers. Mm. And maybe that's why I sort of forget, well, actually just getting a good, a good laugh out of people should be a, a, an objective. Mm. Um, maybe it just doesn't get considered because so much effort goes into the, uh, into the t- probing the emotional darkness. <laughs> Quick question about lockdown, actually, um, and the magazine, Obviously, we've been looking for small pleasures and joys. And I imagine that the magazine having, actually having a physical product has really possibly worked quite well for you, actually, over the last 12 months. I imagine it's had its difficulties, but have people responded well to actually having something that comes through the post? Yes, I think uh, those people who do subscribe to Strong Words get quite excited at the, the idea of a magazine. I think magazines are so rare in people's lives now that they've taken on a, a sort of slightly uh, sort of fetish aspect. You know, they said the, these this lovely shiny paper and the bright <laughs> colours and everything is not something that's taken for granted so much anymore. It's something which is very, um, very sort of rare. It makes a rare appearance in people's lives. So that aspect of things is, um, yes, is very good. And I would urge everybody in their right mind to subscribe to Strong Words and jump in that river of pleasure as soon as you possibly can. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely, I like that. Um, I mean, yeah, it's going the way of uh, it's going the way of records. I imagine and vinyl, isn't it? People are people are re- realising they don't have physical things in their lives anymore in the same way. And You know, magazines do make a connection with people on a much more um, intense level than the, just the, you know, the drifting around in social media, um, yes. you know, where you just don't have the same intimacy, you know. And I think I see social media as a, a deep dive into a shallow pool. You know, yes, you, can, yeah. you can spend an eternity in there without really getting an awful lot out of it it just passes the time but it doesn't last it doesn't stick and it doesn't provoke any an awful lot more whereas a magazine is a much more reading a magazine look at a magazine is much more of an act of contemplation Mm. and sets off a different part of the brain you know it works on the imagination and I don't think social media has the same access to the imagination at all yeah. And building up that trust again with one source, as, as you say, you know, rather than just all these people who are everywhere on social media, everyone's saying something. It's like a magazine has you know, been edited and there's a curator in that process that's telling you, look, if you trust me, you're going to trust all this stuff that you see here and, and take your time over it. People do often say, you know, which, which book should I read next? What is your source of information about which book to read next? And most people haven't got one. No. You know, they'll, they'll either go and wander around the bookshop and hope uh, and they find something they like or they'll ask a friend and friends aren't always uh, particularly reliable because they'll tell you not that they don't want to help but they but they'll tell you what they liked but that doesn't necessarily mean what you like mm. whereas you know if you read a a magazine like for example strong words uh then you, you know you get this this great uh spread of things and i know for a fact that uh, people you know rarely get to the end of an issue without thinking there are at least half a dozen books in there which I'm not just that I would like to read but I am going to buy so mm. it's it's effective as well and what's the reaction been I see lots of testimonials everywhere around it <laughs> <laughs> well those people those people who have been made aware of it love it you know for people who are into into buying books and reading about books and want to be entertained and find something useful they, you know they love it but it's uh, my goal for 2021 is to make mm. the entire planet aware of strong words and persuade at least 50% and subscribe to it. Um, what are you reading right now? 
Uh, well, I tend to read a, a book a day uh, when I'm really, you know, flying through the, you know, through the magazine. And uh, I read one of the eff- effects on one's brain of reading so much is that it's impossible to remember what I've read. So <laughs> I have to I have to keep a list of it. The book which I've read this issue, which has most blown my mind, is a work of journalism by a French writer French journalist called Florence de Changy and she's a writer for Le Monde and she has written about the disappearance of the plane MH370 which is the Malaysia Airlines yeah. plane which uh, went down uh, seven or eight years ago and ha- and not a trace of it has ever been found so she has done this hugely impressive journalistic investigation into what might have happened to it Mm. because there is no such thing as a plane disappearing it just doesn't Mm. it doesn't happen certainly not a you know a big passenger jet with um 200 and something people on it so for it to just disappear is in itself a giant sign of something yeah very strange and very wrong so her book is called a disappearing act and it comes out uh i think at the beginning of february and it's absolutely magnificent. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm very, I have a great weakness for, for great long form journalism anyway, but this is just brilliant. Absolutely superb. When you read something you don't particularly like, uh, what, what's your approach? Do you find it hard to write a bad review knowing the author might read it? Um, you know, how does that go for you? Well, if it's something that I really don't like, then I won't put it in. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because I don't see any point in. Um, you know, tearing something to shreds. When I was a teenager, I used to love the enemy and the enemy was the absolute um, uh, epitome of magazines just tearing bands apart. You know, they would absolutely go to town on and be quite funny. You know, when they did it really well, they could be quite witty about it. And I think there is definitely a a tradition, a great tradition of of, uh, in reviewing, of saying really cleverly, brilliantly mean things about people but I I don't think there's I don't really think there's any point you know because if people are looking for something to read and to get a sense of whether is this book going to be for me there's no point in saying well I didn't like it the idea is to say well this is what this this is what this book is about and this is what it does really well and these are some of the things that really lodged in my mind or that you know that make it noteworthy Mm. um but to go to town on um on on uh you know some of that reason like this just, just just no point so occasionally there are books you know there's loads of books that i really don't like and loads of books that really annoy me and one of the sort of genres of books that annoy me is at the moment is there i think there's certain writers who kind of assume that just because they have written something it's automatically interesting because it's mm. by them <laughs> uh, it's like the, it's like the like, like the sound of their own voices and every now and again you get a book by somebody who is um one of those writers who kind of churns them out and you can just tell you're an autopilot it's too it's fine that you found your genre it's if i had a genre i would write in that genre and i'd yeah. absolutely milk it you know if, mm-hmm. were, if that was where my living uh, were to be made i would do everything possible to make it but every now and again you get people people put a book out where you kind of feel yeah, you're on you're on fifty percent there. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's no good. But there's so many fabulous books to choose from that it's really not a massive challenge to provide a really broad range of different yeah. types of books, fiction and nonfiction, history, biography, uh, graphic novels. I even do a few little bit of cookbooks and children's books to achieve a really interesting and 
extraordinary range of books without having to dip into a sort of layer of books that I personally don't like very much. Nice, a very positive approach. <laughs> um, Ed, thank you very much for joining us this evening. I really enjoyed our chat. It's, yeah, it's been fantastic. Um, so Strong Words, uh, you're on issue 24, 25 is coming up soon. 25 comes out in early, mid-February. Early yes. mid-February, issue 25, so our listeners can get subscribing because uh, you've probably got a lot more information about the books to read than uh, <laughs> than our uh, shouty, sweary reviews. We're going to go and put the kettle on and we'll leave you to do the same. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks really so much. If you'd like to subscribe or find out more about Strong Words magazine, head to strong-words.co.uk. You'll also find plenty of information on our website, dabblersbookclub.com. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.